as well. Hi, everyone. I think we're going to get started here. Um, my name is Nina Satija. I'm an investigative reporter at the Texas Tribune. Um, I was also an environment reporter at the Tribune for two years. And we're very excited and honored to have Professor Catherine Hayhoe with us today. Uh, thank you all so much for coming. Um, I think a lot of you probably know Catherine Hayhoe. She's a professor at Texas Tech, a climate scientist. Um, she wanted me to uh, convey to you all that she doesn't hold anything against um, Aggies or the Longhorns. It's all good. Um, and uh, we're so excited to have her today. And I think she really brings um, an incredible perspective, really unique perspective to studying climate change, to communicating climate change. Um, she's been in Texas for 10 years, um, actually born in Canada. So got that perspective of, of being from outside the US. Um, and also an evangelical Christian. Her husband's actually a pastor um, in, in Lubbock, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and also a professor at, at Tech. So um, we were talking about this in the green room. You're, you're Canadian evangelical Christian studying climate change in West Texas, which I think is like a great phrase. Just got yeah. all sorts I, of I things packed in I think that breaks five there. stereotypes in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so um, thank you so much for being here. And I, I want to start uh, by talking about that unique unique perspective and what that brings um, to the table for you. I mean, talk about um, you know, your faith and how bringing your faith into science has evolved since you've been in, in Texas. That's actually something that's happened to me being in Texas because until I moved to the States, you know, being a naive Canadian, I didn't realize that climate change was politicized. I mean, to me, you know, the sky is blue, the grass is green, climate is changing due to human activities. And then I realized that no, not everybody's on the same page. In fact, although the numbers are changing, you know, for a lot of the last 10 years, you know, somewhere around half the people in the United States and the majority of people in Texas would say, no, climate is not changing. And even more, some of the reasons they would give would be faith-related reasons. So some of the reasons are sometimes scientific. People say, oh, it's just a natural cycle or this has happened before. But often when you dig deeper, then you start to see more fundamental objections. Objections like, I don't want the government to set my thermostat. I don't want the government telling me what type of car I could drive. Or if God is in control, this couldn't happen. So when I first moved here 10 years ago, at that point, I had an idea of what I was getting into. I was the first climate scientist to work at Texas Tech University. Mm. And I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. But within about two or three weeks, of being there, I had actually gotten my first invitation to speak to a women's group about climate change. So I, the scientist, thought, okay, I put together my science slides and I go along and I talk about science. But then a lot of the questions I started to get, once you cover all the science, were about other issues, issues that have more to do with what's in here than what's in here. So as I talked to more and more people over that year and the next year and the year after that, I started to realize that I had to do something that as a scientist was extremely foreign to me. I had to talk not just about data and facts and figures, but I had to talk about values and things that I care about and what's important to me. Because why should we care about climate change? We should only care about it if it relates to something that's already in our hearts. And so for a scientist, that's kind of scary. I mean, we are, we are trained very much to stick to the script. If it is not in the peer-reviewed literature, you don't say it. But nothing about feelings or emotions or values are in the peer-reviewed literature, at least not in the climate science literature. So for me, I mean, it was kind of scary. It was almost like pulling down your pants in public. It was that type of exposure. <laughs> so this wasn't your plan. You didn't plan to communicate no, this way. No, absolutely not. Nobody, I'm right. not an exhibitionist, and that was not my plan in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But I realized that to, to really connect on this issue, we do have to connect at the heart level, not the head level. And so that is why where we come from matters. What's important to us matters, our community matters, and our faith matters. Because for a lot of us, for over 80% of people in the United States, a lot of our values come from our faith. And so it's really hard to talk about caring about an issue if we haven't related that issue directly to our core values. Right. And you know, you've been, now you've been here for 10 years. I think you've, like you said, you've evolved a little on how you want to communicate with Quite the public. <laughs> Quite a um, bit. <laughs> you know, where do you see, um, how far do you think you know, you've been able to come. I mean, we're in Texas, it's a red state. Um, you know, our statewide Republican leaders have expressed some, some skepticism on this issue. You know, where do you think we are uh, politically in Texas with, with dealing with climate change? Well, the biggest thing I feel like I've learned is not to start with the science anymore. 
which again for a scientist is very hard because that's what we know the best. But when we start arguing over the science, when we start saying, yes it is, no it isn't, this says this, this says that, mm -hmm. it kind of feels like the whack-a-mole game at the state fair. Anybody ever, you know, you've seen that game? You have the big hammer and the mole pops up and you whack it and then another mole pops up and you whack it and you just keep on whacking the moles until you get tired and you don't really ever get anywhere. Do you really ever win one of those giant stuffed animals? Usually not. And in a conversation where you're talking with somebody who might not be on the same um, wavelength as you, might have the same opinions as you, you rarely reach a positive resolution if you're just arguing from the head level. And so the biggest thing I've learned when beginning conversations is to begin a conversation with something that we both genuinely care about. Whether it's our kids, the place where we live, our faith, some aspect of water or politics or the economy or crops, whatever it is that we genuinely share and then say, and you know why I'm so worried about, you know why I'm so worried about, you know, Melissa who has asthma. You know why I'm so worried about my friend here who has a farm but his water in the aquifer is running out. You know why I'm so worried about our economy here. I'm worried about it because we know that climate in Texas goes like this, right? If you live anywhere else, it kind of goes like this. If you live in Texas, it goes like this. We have wet, we have dry, we have hot, we have cold. But we're starting to see over the past 10 years, I think most of us, if we're kind of in touch with what's happening outside, we don't just live inside in air conditioning all the time, we see that something's changing. And so yesterday, or not yesterday, sorry, last Sunday, I was, I was at church, I was just sitting outside the Sunday school area waiting for my son to come out, and another dad came up to me, who I've seen around, but I don't know his name, but he knows what I do, so he came up to me and said, do you feel like the weather's getting weirder? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. Because <laughs> we're used to this, but now what's happening is it's getting stretched. And you can see it, right? And so when I said, yeah, he's, he nodded. He's like, I knew it. <laughs> and we've seen that just in the past couple of years. I mean, exactly. We've seen, uh, you know, one of the worst droughts Texas has ever had. Mm -hmm. And now and we've seen these horrible the floods. Yep. Right. Do you think that, you know, people who, are, who have a decision-making power in Texas are noticing that? Do you think they're paying attention? Mm-hmm. I think it's hard not to notice. So the first industry that has noticed that something is happening and it's having an economic impact on us was the insurance industry. Hmm. Yes, the insurance industry has noticed for years and even decades. The insurance industry has done some interesting things. For example, farmers insurance made headlines two years ago when they sued the city of Chicago for failing to adequately prepare for a changing climate, leaving farmers insurance to pick up the tab on the flooding. Allstate also made headlines when they said that they didn't want to insure people living on Long Island anymore if they built homes within range of storm surge from hurricanes. Why are they doing this? Because they can see it happening. That was 10, 15 years ago, but now it's gotten to the point where here in Texas, most of us can see that something is happening, something is changing, and it isn't just about what's happening you know, up in the Arctic or in some low-lying island in the South Seas. It's something that's happening right here in Texas. Our wet periods are getting wetter. Our dry periods are getting longer and stronger because the hotter it is, the more water evaporates from our soil and from our reservoirs. We see crazy heat in the summer. We're still seeing cold in the winter. Like I said, you know, this is Texas, and then this is Texas now. Right, and you know, I wanna um, actually, I was at the one-on-one -on -one with T. Boone Pickens earlier, and he said something interesting. He said, he said if climate change is 100% caused by man, then in why, some why is it of always it, man? I, I mean, it's like women get a free pass <laughs> on this one. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> he said, um, you know, if it's 100% man-made, mm -hmm. then um, some of it must be irreversible. You know, there's just oh, nothing yeah. we can do. Yes. Um, where is that coming into play? I mean, you know, I hear, I hear uh, some politicians now saying, okay, yes, we, we think it's real. We think um, that humans are responsible, but it's too late. You know, oh, if America were to, you know, reduce all of its carbon emissions, it would only d reduce the Earth's temperature by one degree. I mean, well, uh, what do you do with that? Oh. How do you respond? I shake my head because hope is what keeps us going as humans. I mean, if you lose hope, that is when you think that life is not worth living anymore. So it's fine. If somebody wants to lose hope, that's fine. But to take that attitude and to actually propose it as a policy <laughs> of, of lack of hope, I just feel like that's one of the most depressing and um, 
what's unhopeful? <laughs> one of Hopeless. the saddest, yeah. one of the saddest ways to approach our future. Um, first of all, let's kind of let's kind of start backwards with the mm. how much of this climate change thing is humans. I'm going to tell you something that a lot of people who even work and live in the field of climate change might not know. In fact, I was on a research team for the National Science Foundation where they were working with weather forecasters and they were surveying them. They said, do you think that climate change is entirely natural? Do you think it's mostly natural? Do you think it's half and half or do you think it's mostly human? And when I was reviewing the survey, I said to them, you know, you don't actually have the right answer on the survey. And so mm. what are you talking about? Well, we know that natural factors affect climate, right? We know that living in Texas. We know that when it's an El Nino, we have a nice wet year like we just had this past year. We know that when it's a La Nina, we have a crazy dry period like we had in the drought back in 2011 and 2012. We know that over time, the energy from the sun goes up and down. And we know even that the changes in the orbit of the Earth bring on the ice ages or the warm periods like we're in today. So the first thing we scientists do when we see the Earth running a fever is we go to these natural suspects and we say, could it be one of these that's causing the planet to warm? <coughs> but natural cycles like El Nino, they don't create or destroy heat, they just move it around the planet. So with El Nino, some parts are warmer, others are cooler. With La Nina, others are warmer and some are cooler. So it can't be natural cycles that's warming the whole planet. It can't be the sun because the sun's energy has actually been going down since the 1970s. And it can't be the orbital cycles of the Earth because you can actually calculate using geometry where we are in the Ice Age cycles. Did you know that we should be heading into another Ice Age now, according to where we are in the orbital cycles? And we're obviously not. And we're not. No, we aren't. Ice now, age. just to get straight, we don't want to head into another Ice Age. I mean, where I come from in Canada, we'd be under a mile of ice during another Ice Age. What do we like? What's the perfect temperature for humans? Just right, the temperature we've had over the last couple thousand years when we have gone to seven billion people and counting. That's the perfect temperature for humans. How much of the warming we're seeing today is human? More than 100% because if it were up to natural causes, we would be cooling right now. That's pretty crazy. More than 100%. Yes, more than 100%. So now you know the answer. If you get a survey, you know to pick <laughs> other. But now the okay. second thing you said was really important. Is it too late? The way I think about it is, I think about it like smoking. Now, you probably know somebody said, well, you know, I've smoked all my life, why quit now? There's always a reason to quit. If you're not dead, <laughs> there's always a reason to quit. And then somebody might say, well, what's the right amount of carbon? Like, can we produce up to this amount of carbon and we'll be okay, mm -hmm. but if we just go a little bit over, that's too much? Well, to that I would say, well, what's the magic number of cigarettes you can smoke before you run the risk of getting lung cancer? Like, you know, if you smoke 999 packs, but you don't go for that thousandth pack, are you going to be okay? It completely depends. For some people, it's dangerous. For some, it isn't. So from that perspective, we as humans, we understand risk. We know that the more cigarettes we smoke, the greater the risk. We know the more carbon we produce, the greater the risk. But what I study specifically is I study the future impacts of our choices. So I study a future where we continue to smoke a pack a day, in other words, where we continue to depend on fossil fuels for our primary source of energy. And I study a future where we continue and where we accelerate the transition that is already happening in Texas today. And the further you go out, the bigger the difference between those two futures. The bigger the difference in terms of the impact on our health, on our welfare, on our economy, on national security, on agriculture and water and ecosystems and energy. I mean, it's hard to name something that isn't affected by the changes we see in our planet. So we're going to get into, I think, what, what we want to talk about for most of this hour, which is preparation and mm -hmm. what you're working with. But I want to uh, touch on something really quickly. You know, you talked about having hope. I mean, can you, you know, I mean, I would think that faith would have an, have an, have an argument yes. in that. Do you see that having an, having a helpful impact on that, on that argument? You know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, you know, it's all China, it's China's goal, and it's, it's China's job now, the U.S. can't do anything. I mean, where do you see faith playing a role in, in helping people maybe understand, no, you know, everyone needs to act? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the way I think of science is, I think of science as a very important tool that can answer a lot of questions for us. 
So science can tell us that climate is changing, that humans are responsible for how much? Yes, <laughs> excellent. And science, especially the kind I do, can tell us the difference between our choices. But science is kind of like a compass. A compass can tell you which way is north and south, but it can't tell you what's the right way to go. In the same way, I can talk about the impacts from all different choices we make, but what's the right choice to make? That's where our values come in. And again, for many of us, our values do come from our faith. What's interesting to me growing up in the Christian faith is that I've come to realize, talking about this connection between our values and our science over the past few years, I've come to realize that the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith that provide me with the motivation to care about climate change are shared by almost every single world religion. Call me naive, I did not realize that hmm. until I started talking with other colleagues. So I grew up Protestant, talking with colleagues who are Catholic, talking with colleagues who are Muslim, talking with colleagues who are Hindu, talking with colleagues who are Jewish or Buddhist. They said, well, I really appreciate what you say because you're talking about responsibility. That comes from the first chapter of Genesis where God gave humans responsibility for every living thing on the planet. Did you know that in our holy book or in our writings or in our teachings, it talks about responsibility and stewardship too? In fact, sometimes it actually uses that word. And then for me, it's, it goes beyond stewardship. It's not just about caring for the planet as if it were our home that we live in. It's about also caring for other people. Because climate change is affecting real people today, especially people who are poor and who are vulnerable already. The United States already has its first climate refugees, and those climate refugees are Native American tribes in Alaska and in Louisiana. People already across the world, especially in Southeast Asia and in Africa, are being impacted by changing patterns of rain and drought, flood and heat. So these tribes in the U.S., I would think in Louisiana, what, the land is disappearing it's sinking. from underneath them? Yeah, It's literally sinking. Right. And in the Arctic, their land is thawing and crumbling and falling into the ocean. So that care for others, especially for people who are poor, people who are vulnerable, people who are weak, that is also a core value that is shared by just about all of us. I mean, if we call ourselves human, if we recognize that we are genetically the brother and sister of every human on this planet, how can we not care about something that is affecting all of us? It's affecting my family, it's affecting my children, it's affecting my community, it's affecting my country, but it is also affecting my brothers and sisters all around the world. And that's where I think also preparedness obviously comes in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's part of it where you're talking about trying to you know, reverse or mitigate the effects themselves, and then there's part where you're saying climate change is happening, we're experiencing whether it's drought, flood, and we need to be prepared. So let, let's go into that a little bit. Um, you're working with the city of Austin, yeah. a number of other cities mm -hmm. in Texas and also elsewhere, oh, out, yes. outside. Yeah. Um, what can they do? What, what are they doing to prepare? So often when we think about climate change, we think about cutting our carbon footprint. We think about transitioning off fossil fuels to renewable energy. That's what we call mitigation, and that is one big side of the coin when it comes to talking about climate change. But I got the opportunity to go to the Paris Climate Conference this December, and what fascinated me was that out of the almost 200 countries there, the vast majority of those countries hardly have any emissions to mitigate. They are mm. all concerned about adaptation. They are dealing with the consequences of the choices that we as humans, especially in Western Europe and North America, have been making for the past two or three hundred years. But it isn't just affecting them, it's affecting us here. And so the way I think about it is, I think about climate as a road. So if you've ever driven around West Texas, not so much here in the hill country, but around West Texas, the roads are very straight. Have you driven on some pretty straight roads in West Texas? Yes. Those roads are so straight, for example, I-27 going north from Lubbock to Amarillo, that road is so straight that you could stay, not just on the highway, but in your own lane for a good long time if you were driving along, looking in your rear view mirror. I don't recommend it. <laughs> don't use it as an excuse. Catherine Hayhoe said, <laughs> no. But you could, why? Because the road is straight. But just before you come to Plainview, Texas, there's this huge curve in the road, and there's this row of concrete silos along the edge of the curve. And if you are driving along, looking in your rearview mirror at that point, when you hit that curve, what's going to happen? Let's just say we're going to end up where we don't want to be. So how does this relate to climate? Think about how we plan. 
How do we determine where the 100-year flood zone lies? By looking backwards at rain events in the past. How do we determine what size air conditioner to buy when we build a new house or when we replace it? By looking at our past demand. How does a city budget for water, for energy, for all kinds of resources? We budget for all of these resources looking in the past. And looking to the past works great if climate is stable and the road is straight. But looking backwards does not work so well if climate is changing. We have to look forwards to see what's happening in the future in order to prepare. So and we're hitting so a curve or we're in a curve already. We're already we're, in the curve, yeah. So let's talk about Austin specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of us live, live here in Austin. Um, what, what, what should we prepare for? What should we expect? Mm -hmm. So nine times out of 10, what climate change brings is not some strange new thing that you've never heard of it. If you're wondering what the 10th thing out of 10 is, it's Zika, um, so to speak, today. Nine times out of 10, climate change takes the risks that we already face today and it exacerbates them. So people often come to me saying, well, how do I know how climate change is gonna affect the place where I live? And I say, well, think back at what has impacted you in the past. When I first joined the public administration program at Texas Tech, I went to our first stu student orientation and the speaker was the city manager for Amarillo. He gave a talk about the 15 greatest challenges he had faced in his job. And I was just sitting there, you know, I was there to be polite, I thought, but then as he started going through the 15 challenges, my mouth just started to drop as I realized, oh, that has to do with climate, oh, that has to do with climate. He was talking about having to redraw the flood zone. He was talking about how to how, having to house Katrina refugees. He was talking about dealing with drought. He was talking about dealing with storms. Mm -hmm. in the, at, by the end of his talk, 11 out of the 15 challenges he had confronted were aspects of climate and weather that would be affected by a changing climate, but he didn't even realize it. That wasn't even part of the talk. But he knew in which ways his city was vulnerable. So in working with Austin, the very first thing that I did when Austin asked me to come in was to sit down and say, you tell me, because nobody knows a city more than the city itself. You tell me what has happened in the past. Has there been a record drought that affected you? When was it? How did it affect you? Has there been record heat waves that affected you? Have there been these ice storms? Have there been heavy rainfall events? Let's look at what's already happened in the past, because nine times out of 10, that is how climate change is gonna affect us in the future too. And we had these, uh, of course, the 2011 summer was the worst. Yes. Yes. was the worst summer. I, I had not yet moved to Austin, but I believe we had 100 days straight of 100 degree or higher weather. I mean, is that the kind of thing yeah. we should be expecting more of? Yes. So one of the first things the city came back and asked was, well, can you look at how the frequency of extreme heat days will change? So on average, how many days per year in the past and in the future have we had over 90 or 95 or 100? And that's definitely something we can look at. We can't say it's gonna rain on July 18, 2035. Nobody can say that, that's ridiculous. But what we can do is we can look at the trends in climate because climate is weather over 20 to 30 years. So we start in the past and we gather all the weather station data that, that's already happened and we look at how climate has changed in Austin, you know, from the early, early 1940s, I think is the best data up until now. And then we look to the future and we say, what trends do we expect to continue to happen? And then we can prepare for those trends because well, what are we doing? We've taken our eyes off the rear view mirror and we're looking ahead down the road and we can see that curve that we're on and we can make sure that we're gonna be okay, that we're gonna be prepared. So you're looking, you're talking to the city of Austin about, you know, we could see more days of, of over 100 degree heat, extreme heat, um, you know, more, uh, maybe more torrential rainfall events or worse torrential rainfall events than we've had before. What do they do specifically to prepare then? What, what happens after that? Yeah. How do they use that information? That's a great question. This is why I love doing what I do because I always learn. When I ask people that question, <laughs> I learn myself. So one thing that we're working on in Austin, for example, is we're looking at how having our climate go from this to this might affect water supply. We know that water supply, especially surface water in the rivers and the reservoirs, is critically dependent on the amount of rainfall we get. It's also dependent on the timing of rainfall, and it's also dependent on temperature because it's all surface water. So if it's hot, the evaporation rates speed up and those levels drop like a stone. So we're looking at that so that they can prepare to manage the water in a changing climate. 
We've also done some work with a lot of different other cities, and one of my favorite cities was Chicago. And there, Chicago's doing all kinds of fun things. They are, for example, I shouldn't say fun. They're doing all kinds of smart things. That's what they're doing. I think it's just interesting to see how people respond. They're doing all kinds of smart things. Like, for example, in Chicago parks, when they have to replace their trees, and trees have a fairly long lifetime on the order of decades, they're replacing their trees now with trees that are native to further south. Because we plotted the, the USDA plant hardiness zones for them. And so they actually know what plant hardiness zone they will be in when mm. that tree reaches maturity. Another thing... So they're that, planning for hotter weather, Yeah, they're basically. planning for hotter weather, exactly. Right. Right. Another really cool thing they're doing is um, Chicago has had some serious heat waves. And if any of you have ever lived or grown up in a northern city, you know that in northern cities, especially in older buildings, people don't have central air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So heat waves can be really deadly when people aren't used to them. Here we know what to do. There, not so much. So we looked at the frequency of the type of heat waves they had in 95. How frequently would those come back in the future? We found that they could get to the point where, under the continued dependence on fossil fuel scenario, you could be getting multiple heat waves a year, which is crazy. Mm. So Chicago did something amazing. You've heard of the urban heat island effect, right? It's the effect by which, you know, we have all this black surface and black pavement and black roofs. Our neighbors just put black shingles on the roof, and I'm like, people, if I could change one thing, like gray shingles don't cost any more than black shingles. And it just reflects it off. Just, yeah, the black shingles just soak up the heat. So because cities have this urban heat island effect that makes the city a couple of degrees warmer than the surrounding countryside, Chicago is working to reduce their urban heat island by the same amount that climate change is pushing temperatures up. Hmm. By putting in green roofs, by putting in more reflective surfaces. And the beauty of being a city is they can do it. So they can actually alter their microclimate to adapt to climate change. So you can actually make a difference by reducing the number of the amount of concrete or whatever it is. Yeah. Or, you know, the color of the concrete. The color, the color of the concrete. That's the biggest I see. part. Wow. Well, I also want to talk to you about flooding because it's been such a big issue here in Texas. We've had these really devastating floods in, in Houston this year, last year. Uh, we had the Wimberley flood um, yes. last year, just yeah. really tragic. Um, and you, you mentioned redrawing the flood zones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much can we learn about, about adapting to what people, you know, like to say is a new normal? You know, the 500-year mm -hmm. flood, you know, doesn't really seem to be the 500-year flood yeah. anymore. Um, you know, what can cities do you know, specifically to, to address that or to at least prepare for, for mm -hmm. something worse. Because I hear from cities, from the city of Houston, they've said, well, show me what climate change is. Tell me what number I should prepare for, and then I'll do it. But I have no idea. I'm, I'm lost. Yeah. So when we're preparing for climate change, the first, the first step is to say, where are we vulnerable? And the second step is to say, is that vulnerability changing? And I think the answer for Houston is very clear. That one of the biggest vulnerabilities for Houston is flooding whether it is from coastal storms or whether it's just from inland storms because as the planet warms, as our temperatures warm, evaporation speeds up and if you're located near or along the coast and those storms sweep down, there is an almost infinite source of moisture from the Gulf of Mexico when those waters are warm. And that's a big part of what happened in Houston earlier this year and again in Baton Rouge. Because this year, last year was the warmest year on record. 2014 was the warmest year on record before that. And this year has a 99% chance of breaking both of those records. All that to say, waters in the Gulf of Mexico were incredibly warm this year. And the warmer they are, the faster they have evaporation. What happens to that water vapor? It sits up there waiting for a storm to come along, pick it up, and dump it. So this is just not just about hurricanes. This is, this is no. the torrential rainfall. It's just right? torrential okay. rainfall. Yeah. This, the exact same storm that comes along today has more rain associated with it than it would have 50 or 100 years ago. So how does that relate to cities? It relates to cities because the changing frequency of heavy precipitation is the hazard. But the risk is the sum of the hazard plus the vulnerability. And the flooding that we saw in Houston was the result of two things. Yes, it was the result of heavy rainfall becoming much more frequent in Harris County mm -hmm. over the past few decades, but it was also a consequence of what else? The paving of Houston. Paving is an impermeable surface. 
And so the water falls, it has nowhere to go except to run off and then to collect and flood. So that is where cities have their power, through their infrastructure. Through designing stormwater treatment systems, or not systems, but, but sewers, and, and they can serve as catchments because if we get heavy rain and then we get longer prolonged droughts, you want to save the water anyways. You don't want it to just necessarily run off, especially where I come from. Excuse me. We now, well, you know, in, in Houston we see, um, you know, really, really fast-paced development, one of the fastest growing oh, yeah. metro regions uh, in, in, in the country, certainly. Mm. Um, can they, you know, should we, be, should we be building new infrastructure that's, that's more resilient? I mean, that's resilient to a 500-year, or what we yeah. think today is a 500-year? Because the standard yes. nationwide is still 100-year, right? Yeah. If we even get to that. Well, that's why some of the cities I work with, for example, I've done some work with Boston and Cambridge and Massachusetts, they are redrawing their flood zone maps because they recognize that the 100-year flood is no longer the 100-year flood, and it's mm -hmm. much more frequent. So if you're gonna draw a 100-year flood zone now, it looks you know, more like the 500-year flood zone. So they are redrawing those flood zone maps. And that's part of it. But part of it is, too, just city planning. So for example, Boulder, Boulder, Colorado, you'd normally think, well, that's a city that's gotta be very prepared. They got slammed in 2013 with an incredible flood. I don't know if you remember hearing about that. It was incredible. So they took that to heart, and they are redesigning a lot of their infrastructure with permeable surfaces, um, you know, redoing the types of you know, grassy areas and dirty areas and having more open areas. They're actually redoing it because they are preparing for having something like that come back again. And when it comes back again, they will be ready for it. That's the ability of cities is to say, you know what? We know something already happened in the past. And you say that event that we already lived through, we know exactly what the economic damages were, we know exactly what the infrastructure damages were, we know exactly what the toll was on human health and welfare. If that exact event is gonna come back in the future, but it's gonna come back more frequently, then we know exactly how to prepare for it. And that's why the information and the wisdom that lies in cities, I think, is so important. It's interesting. I think that the perspective in, in a city like Houston is you know, what we had uh, from flooding officials that we've talked to is essentially what we had was a freak event. Um, it was a crazy amount of rainfall. It makes no sense economically to prepare for that type of rainfall, and it just is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, sounds like you'd have a different view. Well, if, if you look at the data, <laughs> which I like to do as a scientist, um, you want to know, is something a freak event? So for example, when you look at the data for Boulder, and when you don't just look at weather gauge data, but you look at paleo data, so tree ring data, going back hundreds and even thousands of years. We don't see an event around Boulder in the last thousand years that was as crazy as that one. So yes, wow. freak event, yes. Is Boulder preparing? They're still preparing because they know in a warmer world, the chance of heavier rainfall is greater. Houston is a different story. When you look at Harris County, the number of extreme rainfall events that have occurred, not just this year, but over the past decade, over the past two decades, the average number is going up. So you might not get that exact one that was quite that bad until maybe another, who knows, couple of decades from now. Yeah. But we will be getting more frequent heavy rainfall events, and so a stitch in time really does save nine. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we're ever gonna get to a point, I mean, as a, as a country where we're looking at, you know, more than 100-year protection? I mean, it just seems so, uh, you, know, we, you know, people always talk about Denmark after Sandy, they went to, you know, those, these countries that had these incredible floodgates and had these, had had these hurricanes in the 60s. Do you think we can ever get there? Well, we, we're already starting to get there um, because as of you know, just, just about a year or two ago, now states are required to account for a changing climate in their state hazard mitigation plan. That didn't used to be the case, but if they want to get federal funding, they have to account for a changing climate. The state hazard mitigation plans are really fascinating documents. I actually teach a class once every other year where we use those as our textbook, so to speak, and the students have to prepare one as their final project. Um, they lay out all of the hazards, so wildfire, hurricane, blizzard, ice storm, all of the hazards that they're subject to, but now they're required to talk about which ones might be changing in frequency because you can become more at risk. Let's, let's talk about yeah. Texas's state okay. hazard mitigation plan. <laughs> There's climate changes in there. They talk about it. Do you know? Do you know? Have you, have you looked at it? Do you know? Or is that something that they have to do in the future? It's not quite, it's not yet a requirement. Um, it's not as much as some other ones, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I th but but individual cities are so right. so. Austin is not the only city who's looking forward. San Antonio is looking forward. Um, we just did a bit of work with San Angelo. 
Um, El Paso is really a leader in many areas, especially in the area of water. So mm. cities are taking a lot of this power into their own hands. But you're right. As we were discussing before, cities can do a lot. But cities are, do not exist in an isolated vacuum. Cities are placed inside a county, inside a region, inside a watershed, inside a state. And there are limits on what a city can do. Right, right. You know, on the state level, um, to tell us about some specific examples. I mean, what we talked about this in the, in the green room. What does, what does the state have to do to sort of step up for cities, do you think? Mm -hmm. What are they trying to do that they can't do without, without some help from, from the state? Yeah. There's probably many examples, but some of the examples I thought of were, um, for example, the Texas Water Development Board. That affects cities, right? Um, they do the, water planning. Yes, with right. water planning. River authorities, those affect cities too. Um, even something as simple as the fact that, well, not simple at all, the fact that I live up in Lubbock in West Texas. There is so much wind there, you don't know what to do with it. We don't have big wind farms. Why not? Because the ERCOT grid doesn't go up to West Texas yet. Now that is changing. We heard the good news this spring. Mm -hmm. But these type of things, statewide legislation related to energy, related to water, even federal legislation related to, for example, crop insurance, or state legislation related to water rights, all of these issues are issues that a, a city has certain um, boundaries within which it can control its issues, but the, the state does affect the city, and that's why working together is so important from the neighborhood scale to the community to the city to the state and even up to the federal level. Do you see the state moving on this at all anytime in the near future? I mean, do you see the legislature? <laughs> you know, we see bills filed. There were bills filed last yeah. session regarding climate change and preparedness. Um, you know, they don't normally make it past committee. Um, you know, you've talked about how public opinion is changing yeah. somewhat fast, actually, on this, including in Texas, right? Yeah. Um, you know, is it just a matter of, of, of playing catch up with, with state politics? You know, when do you see it happening? That's a great question. I don't know the whole answer to that at all. Um, what I do know, though, is that following the public opinion polling, five years ago, about three out of ten people in Texas would say that climate is changing. And 2.5 of those lived in Austin. <laughs> now, five years later, after we have seen our weather getting weirder, seven, more than seven out of 10 people in Texas would say climate is changing. That has happened in five years. Now, they might not say that humans are responsible, but you know what? To prepare for a changing climate, we don't have to agree on the causes. We just have to agree that it's changing. To make smart decisions, that reduce our vulnerability and increase our resilience, all we have to do is say, you know what, I used my eyes and yes, there is a curve on the road and we're on it. And today we're at the point where the majority of Texans, even where I live in West Texas all the way down to Houston, the majority of Texans will say, yes, something is different, something is changing. So how long does it take for public opinion to filter up into legislation? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think I want to try to go there. Okay, but she doesn't want to go there. She asked me, but she's not going to go there. <laughs> well, um, I want to actually take questions in a few minutes, um, mm -hmm. but I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you talk a lot about what we expect from climate change based on the current usage of fossil fuels. So let's mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what's being done to curb that you know, in, in Texas and elsewhere. Um, you know, where are we with that? Texas is a huge, huge state, very, you know, actually very strong on renewable energy. Yeah, we are. But we still hear a lot of, and I heard this in panels earlier today, you know, we're not getting rid of fossil fuels anytime soon, which is probably true, at least for, the, for now. Um, and we're going to need them. We're going to need them even for transportation and electricity generation. Yeah. You know, what's your sense of the next few decades on this for Texas? Mm -hmm. So Texas is a leader in renewable energy. We already have, on average, over 10% of our electricity coming from wind. On a really windy night, over 50% of our electricity can come from wind now. That's how much wind we have installed here in Texas. We have enough wind installed to offset the emissions of over 5 million cars. So in other words, what's mm. that, the DFW area? Yeah. That's a lot. We have towns like Georgetown, of course, that are going green. We have Fort Hood that's buying renewable energy contracts. And people are not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because it makes economic sense, and that's the reason why we should be doing this. It's not just happening here in Texas. One of the biggest questions I get is, what about China? Because we all know what China looks like, right? 
We know that living in Beijing can shorten your life by five years because of the terrible air pollution. We know what the smog looks like. We know that when they had the Olympics there, they had to shut down the coal-fired power plants mm -hmm. so the athletes could breathe. But what most people don't realize is, because their pollution is so visible, they are even more motivated to do something about it. Last year, China's coal emissions dropped for the first time ever. Usually they've grown year by year. They actually dropped last year. China has more wind and solar installed than any other country in the world. So China and Texas are really the leaders right now in renewable energy. And here's the interesting thing. If, if it were about, I don't know, about 30 or 40 years ago, so in other words, if global temperature change, if carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, if sea level rise was at the level it was about you know, 40 years ago or so, and we had this type of renewable energy development, we had these incredibly low prices on solar and on wind technology, we had all of these new technologies coming online, including all of the incredible, you know, you can buy all kinds of electric plugins. I was shopping for a new car and I didn't know you could buy like a three row SUV plug-in. I was like, what? <laughs> So there's all kinds of amazing advances that are happening. And if these advances had happened about 40 years ago, we would be in a completely different place. Mm. We would have offset not all of the impacts of a changing climate, but many of the more serious impacts. The question right now is not, are we transitioning to a clean energy economy? The answer to that is yes, we are. There is no question about that. The only question today is how rapidly are we doing it and how rapidly we can do it. Because right. change is difficult. There is a price to change. But not doing anything is also becoming increasingly more difficult because of the economic impacts of a changing climate. Hmm. Um, if people want to start lining up on either side, there's mics on uh, my left and on my right. Um, and while that's happening, I'm going to ask you one other question. I mean, sure. you talk about renewables, renewables I'm sorry, in Texas. and. But we also hear so much, I mean, we're in a little bit of an oil bust right now. Um, there's a lot of discussion of oil prices. I mean, Texas much more diversified than it was during our last oil bust, um, but still relatively dependent on this, uh, I think, on severance taxes from oil and gas production. Where do you see that fitting in? I mean, as, as, as the state continues to push on renewables, um, you know, how do we get to a place where our, you know, where there isn't concern about the economy as you, as you phase out fossil fuels? Well, that's a good question. Honestly, I hope, I hope most of you went to the morning session where Michael was talking. Yes? Anybody go to the morning session? Because that was really what that was about. And they're the experts, not me. <laughs> so I will just give a brief answer to that, which is the fact that there's this myth, this pernicious myth that we have bought into. And the myth is it's the environment or the economy. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that myth? Yes. Well, let me talk to you about clean energy in Texas. Per megawatt hour of installed electricity in Texas, renewable energy generates eight times more local jobs. That's not exactly the environment versus the economy. Um, when you go and talk to farmers, like the farmer who I visited in Limisa the other year, I went and visited him to talk about the drought. And while I was there, I noticed that his neighbor had wind turbines up to the border of his property. And he had a couple of oil wells on his property. So after we've been chatting for a while, I got up my courage to ask him, I said, is there a reason you don't have wind turbines? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, <laughs> why? And he said, because I got on the list after my neighbor. I've been waiting two years for those wind turbines. <laughs> I said, oh, but I noticed you have oil. He's like, yeah, but those oil guys are always driving on and off my land, messing up my roads, going through my fields. He said, they set up the wind turbines. They go off to Florida. You never see him again. The exact same amount arrives in the mailbox. It's great. Why did that man want wind turbines? It wasn't because he's a tree hugger. We don't have trees in West Texas. <laughs> it was because it makes green sense. And that is the way things are changing. Today in Texas, it is no longer a question of the environment or the overall economy. Now, I don't want to be naive. There are certainly winners and losers. And that's why, for example, I, I like reading the news looking for good news stories. I know it's kind of hard, <laughs> but I really enjoy doing that. So when I post on Facebook, I usually like to post more positive things on Facebook. And one of the coolest stories I saw recently, two of the coolest stories is, number one, how there is a program near San Antonio that is training oil patch workers that are out of work to do solar installation. I thought that was awesome. And then the second story I loved was how a bunch of guys in West Texas, further over, are figuring out ways to inject water into old oil and gas wells 
under pressure to store wind and solar energy because you know storage is a big issue. Right. So they're using wind to pump the water down and then when you need the energy you let it back up again under pressure. I mean talk about human ingenuity. It is just springing forth in this new clean energy economy and again like I said if it was 40 years ago I'd be like hey we're good. But because we're further down the line because we've been smoking our pack a day over the last 40 years we need quicker change. And that really is the only reason why we're still talking about it. Well, we're going to go ahead to questions. I would just ask, please do ask a question. I want to hear the first or second sentence. should have a question mark at the end of it. Otherwise, I, I might cut you off. I will cut you off. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Um, Ma'am, can you yes, start? Yes, I'm Janice. Um, and I, um, my question is, you know, so coming from the perspective of impacting citizens' um, climate action, Right, that's sort of my perspective and where I'm at work. Do you find that mitigation, talking about mitigation, also inspires action that reduces emissions? And if so, why do you think it does that? I, I suspect that it does, um, mm -hmm. but, and I'm, I'm curious because it's another, like you said, it's another area of the climate conversation and, um, and one that I hesitate to myself spend time on because I'm in this other area. But I'm, but I suspect that it's very, very, that it, that it may produce results indirectly, mm -hmm. that are that I'm working on too. Does that make sense? Yes, I okay. think. Let me try to rephrase. Yeah, if this is What you're saying. So, um, people who study people, sociologists and psychologists, have found that often, if we feel like we personally can be part of a solution, then we're willing to support it. So often, we just feel like it's too hard to do anything, and I'm just mm -hmm. one little person. What difference can I make? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's so important to talk about practical ways that we can save ourselves money, reduce our carbon footprint, make a difference, and then also that makes us more willing to say, yeah, we want to make a difference on a larger scale. Is that kind of what you're... No, I was specifically oh, okay. pointing to focusing on, because you were saying earlier that you mostly focus on conversations about, and maybe I mi misunderstood, about mitigation. Um, in mitigation, you're meaning preparation? Yeah, preparation. Okay. Oh, sorry. That's okay. what it is. Yeah, I yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I I'm, I'm misspoke. Okay. Um, but yeah, like preparing, you know, disaster preparedness <laughs> and things like yeah. that. And I, mm -hmm. I wonder how that may also impact actions that would reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you prepare and yeah. at the same time help with actually... Oh, yes. Does it have the same psychological effect on behavior? That um, I think it helps because you're talking about kind of similar issues. and. A lot of the efforts that they're trying to put in place, especially in developing countries, are efforts that do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we can even do that here. Like picture this, for example. When an ice storm happens, what's usually the first thing that happens when you get an ice storm? The power goes out, right? Now, what if you have one of those awesome Elon Musk power walls that cost $3,000 in your garage? And what if you have your own solar panels on the roof? You're fine when disaster hits. So that's just one little example of ways that we can become more resilient mm -hmm. and more independent, which I think is really cool. But we are also doing, we do that by doing things new and different. So, yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, gentleman on the left. Or well, thank, right. <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, this relates to your, your point about are we changing fast enough? And mm -hmm. what I'm wondering is, you know, the goal that Paris talks set is, is the, the Paris talks set is keeping warming to two degrees centigrade or less. Mm -hmm. um, we're currently about 400 parts per million uh, CO2. How far can that go, do you think? How fa and we keep adding to it by mm -hmm. you know, two or three parts per million a year. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, it just doesn't feel like we're on the right path. How, how fast or how, far, how high could that 400 go, do you think, and still have a chance of keeping it oh, under below. two degrees? Yes. So, the higher, the higher it goes, the greater the risk of exceeding two degrees. Um, if, if we go over 550, we're definitely beyond two. So around, you know, around 480, 500 is a nice, safe, you know, um, greater than two-thirds chance. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, most of us would like more than greater than two-thirds, but that's about what they're looking at. And when you yeah. say 480 to 500, in case oh, everyone's sorry, not yes. familiar with terminology. Parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So pre-industrial levels were about 280 parts per million because carbon dioxide is a naturally occurring gas. Right, and it so, exists anyway. Yes, right. so you might say, well, if it's natural, then why do we care about it? Well, just think about all the other things that are natural. You know, food is natural, but what happens if we eat too much food or the wrong food? Water is natural, but you can actually kill somebody with too much water. 
Um, vitamins are good, but if you eat too many vitamins, you can actually make yourself sick, and you know we're not even getting to medicine. So everything in moderation. Right. So we were at 280. Now we're at what's well, the level? Over 400. Okay. And you're saying 480 to 500 is maybe the upper. If we're going we to meet the Paris get. target, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but I should add, sorry, just just yeah. on that note, um, I talked earlier about some of the things that I'm excited about. Some of the technology I'm super excited about is technology to try to remove some of this carbon dioxide from the air. Mm -hmm. There is some pretty interesting stuff going on, trying to find compounds that react. You know like baby's diapers have that powder in it that reacts with the water? You know, so baby's diaper turns into this huge 10-pound thing, but it's not leaking. So in the same way, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's ever changed a diaper knows. In the same way, they're trying to find some type of powder that if you grind it up and expose it to the air, it reacts preferentially with carbon dioxide. Other people are trying to figure out how to turn carbon dioxide that might come out from you know, the, the um, uh, smokestack of a factory, how to turn it back into energy. Because if you could, you would have an infinite loop of carbon. Yes, they're trying to figure this stuff out. Other people, they already have a plant in New Mexico, they're piping the carbon dioxide from a power plant into giant bags of green algae. The green algae only need the carbon dioxide to feed off of. You can turn them into biofuel, and they have already flown what used to be continental, now United. They've already flown some commercial jets using that fuel without changing the engine, and Norwegian Airlines uses biofuel quite regularly. Please. Hello. My question refers to the value of trees in mm -hmm. central neighborhoods. And if you could help us to articulate, I'm from the Bolden Creek neighborhood, and we've been fighting development a lot and too much pavement and impervious cover. Those of us who already live there fear flooding. Could you help us to articulate what really might happen and the value of trees, of keeping the trees, especially along Bowling Creek, mm -hmm. and how oh, yeah. they could help us prevent flooding and, and do other good things for the neighborhood that are more important than increasing density mm -hmm. in our area? Yeah. So there's, there's two very important things trees do. First of all, they help reduce the urban heat island effect. So a neighborhood with trees in it will be a lot cooler than a neighborhood without trees. And that's very important in summer, but increasingly in spring and fall too. The second thing that's important is what they call riparian zones, green zones along creeks. Because when floods come, if floods come, having that green zone as a buffer prevents an enormous amount of property damage. So in Duluth, Minnesota, they have, I think, 11 rivers running through the city, and they had some crazy flooding a couple years ago. So in response, talking about cities, what that city mm -hmm. did was they bought up a lot of the properties and homes that were bordering right along those creeks to make that green buffer zone so that when the flooding came, there would be all that permeable surface to buffer it and so the homes wouldn't be damaged. So there's two very, at least two very important, and that's not even getting onto air quality. Yes. Well, and you know, this is a really huge issue in a lot of Texas cities. Mm -hmm. Lots of development, fast growing, um, you know, demand for affordable housing, which is, tends mm -hmm. to be high density. Yeah. Is there any way to do this and continue that development? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this about green development? Can that help? Can yeah. you still have people move there? Can, can you end up with that and then really have the same effects? Or is it about, you know, buying out and, and growing slower, do you think? That's a great question. question. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I, I am not a city planner or an, or an urban architect, but um, I do know from the little I have spent, the little time I've spent with the Green Building Council and other people like that, that the ingenuity people have in designing new housing is just incredible. So if there were, um, you know, requirements for development of new neighborhoods in terms of the amount of trees, the amount of shade, the amount of buffer zones, if there were requirements, our architects could design to those. There is no question that they could. But often what happens is, at least where I live, these neighborhoods go in and there's no architect involved. It's just, you know, we got the field, we divide the field into this many lots, we just clear cut the whole thing and we put up the trees and it's just this complete bare zone with dark brown roofs. And why is that happening? It's happening because of um, zoning, um, lack of zoning requirements. Hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah. So yes, people can do it. It's just that they will probably not do it unless they have to do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, next question. Hi. I think in addressing a lot of these kind of problems, uh, there's lots of talk about innovation and finding uh, new technologies and new solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but could you speak to the importance of um, 
even looking to indigenous knowledge or uh, kind of more old school knowledge um, mm -hmm. to, uh, to solve these kind of problems. For example, um, non-monoculture agricultural practices as a way to sequester mm -hmm. atmospheric carbon. Yeah, no, that's well. I mean, that's really a great statement right there. Um, we have such a fixed way of doing things because we've grown up in a society over the last few, you know, not just a few decades, last century really, that's this consumer society that just feels like we can dispose of things and never see them again. And now with seven and a half billion people on the planet, that isn't the way it is anymore. You know the story of stuff? Some of you have probably seen that. Yeah, I see a few nods. So different ways of doing things, things that, ways that people used to do it can become so important. And I'll just give you one little example, and I'm sure that you could probably have many more. Um, I went to visit colleagues at Iowa State University last year. They are very concerned about agriculture, and they're very concerned about carbon, and they're concerned about could agriculture actually be the hero in putting a lot of this extra carbon back into the soil. What they've discovered is that if you take agricultural waste and you burn it at very high temperatures, you pyrolyze it, you turn it into something called biochar. So it's this black kind of powder. It has very high carbon content, because instead of the stuff just decaying and the carbon going back in the atmosphere, you've got it in this, in this char. You plow it back into the ground, and it is literally, this is, these are the words of the, of the professor who's studying it, it is miracle grow on steroids. Huh. He showed me his two pots of his own tomatoes in his backyard that he planted, same number of plants, same pot, same soil, one with biochar, one with not. One had something like four tomatoes, the other had something like 35 tomatoes. I mean, it was ridiculous. And this is the most ridiculous thing. He said, you know where the idea from biochar came from? Native peoples in the Amazon have been doing it for over a thousand years. So there you go. Go ahead. Um, you spoke to several in initiatives that happen on the city level and on the state level. What do you think needs to happen national level, or even like when your experience at the Paris Climate Conference on a global <laughs> level? Should it be emissions focused? Should it be agriculture, infrastructure? What do you think needs to happen at those larger scale? That's a great question. What needs to happen at the national scale? Um, Again, I'm a scientist, I'm not a policy expert, so I'm just speaking as a human here. But as a human, I like things to be simple. Often when, you know, when the government gets involved, it gets so complicated and there's all these loopholes and red tape and this and that. And so one of the simplest plans that I have heard is citizen clim Citizens Climate Lobby's fee and dividend plan. What is that? It's putting a price on carbon a price that is equivalent to the damages that it causes, so it's essentially equilibrating the market, saying that when you buy this much natural gas or this much gasoline for your car, it is creating X amount of damages on top. But the second part is the dividend. All of that money gets collected and it gets refunded to people in their taxes. Now you might say that sounds like a fantasy, but number one, this has already been happening in the province of British Columbia since 2007. And I don't know if you know what tax rates are like in Canada. Very high. British Columbia has the lowest personal income tax rate of any province in Canada because of their carbon fee and dividend program. And they also have one of the lowest corporate income tax rates in all of North America. I really love Citizens Climate Lobby and they have an Austin chapter. So look them up, Citizens Climate Lobby, because they are a group of people. They were started by a guy who did real estate development. They're not climate scientists. They're not professional lobbyists. They're just people but they go to their local legislators and say, would you like to join our bipartisan climate solutions caucus to call for a fee and a dividend on carbon? And you know what? If you look up their bipartisan climate solutions caucus, they have, I think the last count was eight Republican congressmen and women and eight Democrat congressmen and women in it. 10 now. 10, thank you. I knew somebody from CCL would be here. 10. And I know that there are more kind of waiting in the closet, ready to jump. They're like, okay, if he goes, I'll go. If she goes, I'll go. I mean, you know what type of world we live in. We don't live in a world where there's a lot of bipartisan caucuses about anything, right? And so the fact that that exists, I think, is an amazing testimony to the simplicity and to the bipartisan appeal of solutions like that. All right. Do we have time for one more? I think we have time for one more. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. If uh, President Obama's clean power plan is uh, ultimately implemented, could you articulate just sort of what effect you think it might have or what piece of the puzzle, climate mm -hmm. change puzzle, it will play for uh, United States climate change efforts? Mm -hmm. um, it is one step in the right direction. It is not the be all and end all. It does address one of the biggest sectors that produce carbon emissions, which is power plants. 
Um, but in reality, we need more. And so that's why, for example, an idea of a simple price on carbon is so attractive because if you get to, okay, well, agriculture is doing this, but animal agriculture does that, and crop agriculture does this, and this does that, and that does that, it gets really complicated really fast. And before you know it, you have a whole new government department just to handle that. So what can we logistically, simply, easily do to fix this problem? That is one step in the right direction, but we definitely need more. So thank you. Sorry I didn't get to everyone's questions, but thank you so much to Catherine Hayhoe for being here. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Great discussion.